Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and Fully Loaded Chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys, welcome back. Um, first recorded podcast together in some time. Some good time, yeah. It, ha- you, it has been a while. Do you care to share? About what? COVID? Oh, no, I, I shared on the podcast. Oh, did you? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I yeah. didn't know if you had. Yeah. I guess you did it with when you were talking to Chad or whatever. Uh, Frank. Okay, Frank. A couple weeks yeah. ago. Yeah. Because I had I had a bad cough and like my mouth would get kind of dry okay. and I had to clear it and I like there was some strain I feel like and yeah. Uh, so yeah and no. they could hear the wheezing behind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm man. I'm back, baby. Yeah. So you're here at my house. <laughs> we're recording uh, two podcasts today. Yep. Uh, it's been a super busy couple of weeks running around. You've been traveling a lot more than I have. Um, yeah, last last week was Western Missouri and Iowa, a new property, Western Missouri, and then a, a check-in in, in Southern Iowa, and then uh, three new properties in Virginia yep. this week, and then a property revisit in Maryland. Virginia so. is climbing the list of popular states for us. A very. I was thinking about that the other day. I it, it's very popular. Um, a lot of people that we work with um, within the state and in all different portions of the state, and there's even more um, on the books for next year in yeah. Virginia. So I, to me, it's like when people ask, like, where's your most popular state? I usually say, uh, Iowa's up there. Missouri, uh, Oklahoma. M- Missouri, Oklahoma, Ohio yeah. are very popular. And then Ohio's kind of paused a little bit where – it's like now and even um, and then you jump into uh, Virginia a lot. So uh, there, there's and I had this conversation with a lot of the folks in the state. And then there's there's challenges within you know regulations and and such um, that as a private landowner, I said you can't you can't change within the state of Virginia. However, resources wise and the general land use throughout a lot of the state there is a heavy presence of timbering industry a heavy ag presence a heavy cattle presence and what that i guess equates to across the rest of the state is a lot of disturbance whereas i would say many other states have we're our big 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 business is this and it's very uh segmented like this portion of the state is timbering. This portion of the state is ag production. This yeah. it's not like that in Virginia. It's a mixture of all of it in one. And yeah. so 
untappedness of the state and the quality of whitetails that can be produced really high. Yeah. The and and well, I experienced it this spring. Um, lots of turkeys across the state right now, and then every place I was on has got birds on it and hens with poults. And I'm not kidding. In the last, let's say, four property, four or five properties I've been to, minus one, which really is kind of an outlier because it's ready, it's tidal marsh, so yeah, it doesn't really fit. But four out of the last five, I have either visually seen or in hearing quail. No kidding. There's just in so Virginia. much. Yeah, there's just yeah. so much disturbance. Yeah. On, on a large scale, um, fragmenting that we are, we're often talking about. Um, Specifically, I was working with the guy yesterday, and he's like, "Well, that was clear cut two years ago." And this is like, he owned he owned a forty acre piece, and plenty of mills around there. Then I would say plenty, but very very large ones. Gotcha. And, and they have a pulp wood. They have they could take you know saw timber, pine plantation. Very every aspect of of logging generally is represented across the state, and mm. and, and so um, you have that. You have a lot of logging. Stack that in with pasture ground, and then the the ag component. Lots of swamps, lots of rivers. It's just it's pretty diverse. It really is, and and there's just some some amazing potential that I think is, is untapped. But we've got people who are doing some some great stuff in in the state, and it is definitely becoming very popular. Um, because I think honestly they know it a little bit too. I think they know that yeah, I think things can be a little bit better. We've got we've got all these components. But how do we tie it together? And yeah. there's the the ones who are are seeing some some sweet stuff happen. Mm. So it's a it's encouraging. Well, when you moving back? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. There there are. Uh, it really is a cool state natural resource wise. From east to west, you go from coast to Chesapeake Bay to tidal marsh to Piedmont to mountains to valleys to back to mountains. It's got everything. It it just it was home. Yeah, I and I love visiting. I have family there. Um, I visit probably probably am there three four times a year. Um, well, but but it's not. We're probably going to cover this latest consult a little bit in the next podcast or podcast number two this week. Kind of some yep. of the things that you visited over there. Um, yeah, you know I say that about Virginia. It's like man home away from home like it, it's yeah. turning into it because yeah for sure it's starting to be it seems like every every time i turn around you're on a flight headed to virginia and i'm like well that's cool man have it have at it like i don't typically <laughs> you need to go you need to go and visit it at this rate day. i'm gonna have to gonna because have to. it seems like more and more consults are coming up over there so um anyway uh we're gonna cover you know we haven't jumped into it but if you want to go back, uh, we had several questions come in. You asked this we prompt, a couple prompted weeks a ago. We prompted a Q&A session. And we yep. attempted to go through Facebook and Instagram in one podcast. That was foolish. <laughs> and so now we're going to actually cover the Instagram questions. Because it, it was foolish due to the number of quality questions that well, came through. Yeah, and how long we wanted frame. to really explain yep. things. So we're going to cover uh, questions that came through uh, on Instagram today. Uh, in this in this podcast, so, so. another Q and A. Yeah, yeah. So um, 
It says we have like, I don't know, 16 or something questions, but I'm not seeing all of them, so I'm, I'll apologize if we don't get all of them done today. But um, anything before we start answering questions, well, you know? We're I was, I was going to say, we, we will do these, you know, on occasion throughout. So if you're listening to this, like, oh, I didn't know you guys did Q&A stuff. Yes, of course, we'll, we'll prompt it on social media, but send in questions. There's been a couple questions that have come through email. We're hanging on to those. But but let's if you have a question, ask it because it's kind of like the the old phrase that teachers used in school. If you're thinking about it, you have that question. Someone else listening is either dealing with it, has dealt with it, or is afraid to deal with it and is wondering the same stuff. So ask it. I got to ask a question about Japanese hops and how to control it in riparian areas. Yeah, I'm like I don't have a ton of experience, and yeah. frankly, I don't have any experience with hand-to-hand combat with Japanese hops and riparian. But I will tell you this. Anytime, I think that's where I was going to go with this too, though, is riparian area invasives may be my least favorite. Yeah. From the standpoint of, and and I guess riparian area, I'm going to classify also with marsh. So wet, wet areas because mm-hmm. you get into marsh invasives, it's terrible. You get into the riparian where it's like, oh, this was brought in from a flood. So this is probably going to be brought in almost every time unless I go upstream and fight it and fight it and fight it. So like Which we're dealing likely with off your property. Star Bethlehem and Poison Hemlock. Yep. Um, Johnson Grass was another big one. Now Reed's Canary is coming in. Um, Phragmites, Japanese stilt grass is very yeah. floodplain, wetland situation. Yeah, so many different things. And then, of course, Frag, I think is what you said. Yep. So. Yeah, um, but anyway, um, it, it it those are all challenging. Yeah, but it's a it's a challenging that you cannot put on the back burner. And it's I, I would just say to make it short and sweet, it's it's irresponsible to to neglect because at some point there's got to be a okay realization yeah. of loss and oh. and and um, at some point I think that there is going to be. As it progresses, um, I think it's going to be a situation where either or the, either landowners are held accountable, or yeah. or they're paid to to eradicate it. Yeah, and and there are opportunities for the cost share benefits are, to remove. There's already the fees. ability to get paid to do it, but I I and foresee only it one even state has stepped in and is like you can get fined for not controlling. Mm-hmm. Kansas is the only one I know of. Right, but in this day and age. I wouldn't be shocked if more and more states adapt it. Oh, I'm, yeah, the problem absolutely. is absolutely. most government agencies don't understand natural resource management to the degree that they should, and therefore we have many, many problems when government has interfered with natural resource management. There are some good things, well, and, but and there are some terrible things. Especially on the private land side of things. But right. I would not be surprised if... Due to the spread of it, it is more land side of things. It is more heavily regulated because the progression and aggression of the invasive species, and there's many more that we didn't even list, um, is is attributing to a lot of loss of habitat and quality and just biodiversity um, across the entire U.S. Yeah, I mean, you look out west, and there's and prairies, uh, cheatgrass dominating uh prairies and taking them over and and yeah. it's, it's everywhere you go there's or, some aspects or sweet clovers yeah yellow yeah. and white blossom mm-hmm. sweet clovers i i, I drove it's through aggressive 
when we bought our bulls, they were out on a, a native prairie in mm-hmm. West Missouri, and I drove out there, and it's like the whole road ditch was just nothing but sweet clover, and you could see where it had started infiltrating the native yeah. prairie. I mean, and we're talking virgin prairie. Never seen a plow, yep. and and then I like, and I've been guilty of this. I planted some on the farm back in the day. Of course, now you couldn't find it um, over over grazing or just didn't take, but. You can see it a lot in mixes, and it's like, oh, yeah. ooh, that's that's a little bit. Pump the brakes, pump the yeah. brakes, because that one, especially when you get into these sensitive areas like uh, native prairies. That and, and Cerisa lespediza on prairie systems are, are mm. raising and wreaking havoc. And uh, I looked at a seed sheet the other day of a local a local seed store, and they were still selling Cerisa right. lespediza seed. Right. It just mm. kills me. Yep, just kills me. But um, man, we gotta yeah. do something about. It. So, so when it, when we get to these uh, questions, don't don't be afraid to to ask away, and um, you know we'll we'll address address those needs. So, uh, as you're pulling that up, Adam, any other any other thoughts on uh, you're getting ready to go and travel this week? You're heading to Kansas. I leave early in the morning for Kansas Prairie. Yep. Actually, dealing with Cerise Lespediza and Johnson grass issues mm-hmm. is a big one. So, probably gonna be some. Uh, Triclopyr and out uh, an outrider, outrider, yep, um, herbicide in the near future. But um, between that, uh, it's a it's an area that I used to hunt uh, public land on. So yep. I'm I'm really excited just to see the place and certainly go from there. Um, and then I got another one. You know, uh, this we'll, month we'll both be in New both York. Be, both be in New York, Pennsylvania areas. Yep. Um, yeah. So and then we've got a, a can uh, Oklahoma. Yep. In less than a month, or right at a month now, um, and then I've got an Illinois one. So yeah. we're still pumping them out and still going. Um, so going it's going to be going to be interesting. Um, what, what we got for questions here? So let's start jumping through some of these questions here. First question: Nearing the end of growth for a red pine plantation in Wisconsin. What would you guys recommend for actions after the cut to help stimulate positive growth for wildlife and will bring it back to native landscape? So uh, what I'm understanding in this is this pine plantation is going to be clear cut here in the future. If, if, if based, on, based on the age, it says nearing its the end, end of growth. Yep. The, the right application forestry rise yeah. would be a clear cut. So if you're not it thinking that, you what recommendations that. after a cut to help stimulate positive yep. growth for the wildlife wildlife and we'll bring it back to native landscape so first off i would say what is the native landscape like absolutely we have to first understand that and say okay was this forest before all that because if it was historically forest which depending on what part of wisconsin we're in it, it, yeah, it very well could be it could be that there, there's a lot of prairies there's lots of swamp land like what what was it yep what was it and then go okay well is there any remnants <laughs> Is there any remnant plant communities still here? What was the management for the red pines? Was it just basically bulldozed and then planted, or was it heavily herbicided and then planted? That, that is the biggest question is previous land use. What happened on the site? And that's going to kind of give you your best direction of can I expect a native plant community to come back naturally after this is clear-cut? Or yeah. do I need to supplement? One thing's for sure is that just cutting it, stuff will grow back. Oh, sure. I mean, the Sunlight. only time that you can probably find land not growing was biblical era cursed lands yeah. and yeah. Um, the story of uh, 
Egypt when they brought in the salt and, and uh, right. salted the fields. Uh, outside of that, stuff will grow. Absolutely. And I would say in Wisconsin, the biggest thing will be when it is all cut, The I, I think first and foremost, biggest priority is the guarantee of stuff will grow. What you need to do is make sure the stuff that's growing is not invasives. Yes. Uh, and, it very well could be just filled with invasives. So when the biggest thing, once stuff grows, make sure that you're removing the stuff that can outcompete and, and basically is an invasive species. But other than that, if we're just looking for the natural regeneration, stuff's going to grow. But if we're really trying to make it optimal habitat, try to you may want to add more woody species component to add that winter food or even well, it's not just winter food but year-round food but especially great food during the biggest stress period which is late winter early spring in wisconsin i, I think that you could easily go from straight pine and go into herbaceous keep it herbaceous manage the herbaceous weeds and growth keep it in an early stage but then supplement and add the shrub colonies and communities yep. that you want and then you have really a a very high quality site and, and, and I wouldn't do be that even opposed to planting back more pines just in some strips to add that thermal cover aspect um, on that landscape because we know how much snow most of Wisconsin gets so and all that's relative right to the rest of the property of course but yep. that's how that's those are the elements and thought process that we would have to okay you're in this region you want to make sure you have these things present on the property well Consider consider these steps. Next up, I would like to hear your opinion on what level of importance we should be placing on mass-producing trees. I know many people buy property that has been hard-timbered or clear-cut in recent uh, post or in the recent past to save money and may uh, what many would be considered junk timber. Or my property, there is very few oaks, so I worry that even TSI and cutting, I won't have much oak regeneration does this mean i will need to start planting mass producing trees will more oaks appear from a seed bank is there a ceiling for my property without mass production hmm. um, i answer is a good question tsi isn't just for oaks or mass producing trees it's for added sunlight to spur on new herbaceous growth as well as stump sprouts for woody brows added cover and structure on the forest floor benefit of tsi can be improving mass production but that's not the only benefits it's likely uh, it's likely too that TSI will, uh, with the addition of sunlight and hopefully fire, there will be the right combination to increase oak regeneration. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say, I would not be surprised if, based on the site and the question, if oaks will come if if the environment, the situation which mm -hmm. the forest is in changes. You add more light and you apply fire, so you reduce the aggression or the regeneration of fire. Uh, or, or the, the trees that are not fire tolerant and therefore oaks have a better chance of incorporating themselves in more composition of the regeneration. There's one aspect. Does it have a ceiling to address that question? Um, I, I think that uh, one, hard mass is not just in trees. There are shrub shrubs that produce hard mass too. Yeah. I think that that's important to consider. Um, but I think that there's a if you will, an almost an unhealthy relationship with the understanding of hard mast and its applications to year-round property management, 
As yeah. hunters, we sit and we observe so much activity around hard mass and poor habitat, right? That's the biggest driving factor because that's when we're hunting, generally when they're falling. So we have this like perception that they're so, 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 so important. But we also know that at that same time frame, good cover is really, really, really important. And, and I don't think that there's necessary a ceiling. I just think that we would want that represented on a property if we can do it. And it may take time and we need to change that management to do it long term. But regardless, if you go and you plant trees, you're talking in, in some instances, eight, 10 years for good hard mass production of, of, of quantity yeah. to be able to be produced. That doesn't mean that hunting is, is going to be horrible for that next eight to 10 years. It, it's not a magic sauce. It's a component yeah. that ideally, sure, you would want and we can manage for it. But it's such but a small window miss. of time. Yeah, don't when, miss the benefit. When you look at hard mass and, and the amount of time that, that, that that's productive for wildlife, we can fill that with a lot of other stuff. No, we can sure. throw in some soft mass, but then wo- more woody brows to where it's not that limited. Right. Um, the big thing to me is... I don't don't look at the long term investment of trying to plant oaks to then get that hard mass and be like, well, it's going to take fifteen years. Well, I'm going to go plant this non-native that they tell me can produce hard mass in four years. Right. Don't do that. All it's right. not that important. Yeah. Like like yeah. I would much rather manage the oaks that are present and already growing than try and supplement and add plants and try and water them in and prune if necessary or whatever make spray them, yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going with the TSI and fire route <laughs> yeah and let everything fall into place yeah what do you do to maintain bedding thickets and micro clear cuts so same thing uh-huh. you know we've called them so many different things when we talk in government paperwork it's temporary forest open openings for guys down south they understand clear cut terminology so when we say a micro clear cut oh it's a small clear cut yep um, bedding thickets is really what what it is, and so um, we're just trying to create a thicket for for deer to bed in and turkeys to nest in, and just overall. So how do we maintain those? A lot of those on our own farms will be maintained with fire every three to five years, um, or additional cutting on a ten year cycle. Typically, I don't get too worried if they grow up and are a little bit taller. Um, we're just going in it's, every. It's likely going to have a higher stem years. count. Yeah, so you have you have the fire option and then you have the mechanical option if you can't use fire or you don't feel comfortable burning it but right the the mechanical option would step in after i would say that six to eight years is when you really need to come in and say okay yeah i think i think we need to set this back some yeah and it could be a combination of um, girdle and spray hack and squirt or just cutting and felling and letting it regrow yeah um it really depends on what trees you cut down in the first place what trees started growing that with that flush of sunlight and then how quickly they grew because if it's a bunch of tulip poplar your maintenance is more regular tulip poplar and sweet gum that was the last four days of my life or aspen yeah if you're up Up north north. so um to me you know if i had to pick one i think more guys can relate to the chainsaw so i'd probably go that route you can burn up some of your vegetation with prescribed fire which isn't always great. I, if, I think I think the fear there is consuming some of that structure, mm-hmm. and and it's that's possible. why we incorporate hinge cuts. But. Yeah, but but um, is it is that possible? Sure, sure it is. But we know it's still going to come back thick and yeah. dense with good 
good vegetation, the plant yeah. communities we want. Yeah, so that's pretty well maintenance, and that should be long after other stuff have been done on the property. Um, yeah, so um, ways, and then the brackets, besides fire that will be done this winter to remove locusts and sumac saplings from native prairie area. Herbicide, manual cutting, um, and so ultimately, besides fire, that one hurts me because he mentions a native prairie, mm-hmm. and then he says besides fire, which if it's a native prairie, it needs fire. Yep. Yep. So its disturbances are grazing and fire first and foremost. Yeah. And some yeah, sometimes you do need and to if the grazing's to, to wrong and can do nothing but promote that stuff. So sure. So sometimes you need to step in with with herbicide. And I think I think what we don't know or have is the overall goal for this. We don't know how dense these areas are. Yeah. But but a sumac I'm just is assume a, it's like mine. A sumac is definitely native. Yeah. But it can get very problematic out west on the sure, prairie. So Sure can. Um, you know, if we're looking at it from a standpoint of how do we control it, um, it's going to be very hard without some sort of herbicide control, especially with the locusts. Now, if you think about locusts being less than two foot tall everywhere, that, that can be a royal pain. Um, but what I have seen work, because if you're trying to target all of them and they're tiny little things, you're going to miss them like crazy. Yeah, that's not a, that's a once-and-done so, deal. So a guy that that we both know what he's incorporated is letting them grow up three plus foot and then start pulling them that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and just at least letting them get to a size that they can clamp onto them and yank them out really quickly rather right. than trying to chase down the little short ones. Sure. Uh, and if you do that, you can pull them out roots and all, you don't right. even have to use herbicide. Um, I have what I've done in the past is just try to peck away at them with herbicide lop them off, cut them off the chainsaw, treat the stump, be done with it. But then you got to haul that off and then you've still got some stumps scattered around. If you're if you're not paying attention, it's a bigger one then you may have to you may be getting a flat tire from that. So when it comes to the sumac, it depends on how thick. If it's just a little dot of them, I don't get worried about it. They're no, great. No, no. But if they are starting to spread and become a uh, that's what kills me as a growing season fire can help set those things back. Yep. Um so I guess another Both thing you could, you could start trying to do is mowing them in late summer, just like a fire would be trying to top kill them. I don't think that's nearly as effective. So I would also be trying to use herbicide on that. And you could just do simple hack and squirt since they're smaller um, and, and killing those with, uh, with herbicide. And if you do, if they're short... You could do a foliar application, but be very careful of all the other plants in yeah. your prairie and the broadleaves that you're potentially impacting as well. Next one. What do you do if deer start using your entrance and exit trails? That sounds like a layout problem to yes. me. Um, yes. If your entrance and exit trail, this is one of those that kills me because I, th- I can almost envision what I dealt with. You dealt oh, with yeah. it. For, I know exactly I can almost envision exactly what's happening is you went in. You cut out the trail, you blew out the leaves, you made this nice clean dirt path because you're going to sneak in all stealthy to your tree stand. Noise-wise and reduce scent. Yeah. 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 And then all of a sudden the deer are like, hey, this is pretty nice. And I can walk around s- 
not scent free, but I can walk around quieter on this. Yeah, and all of a sudden they're they're using your trails. That's why when we create, like there are stands that we've cut out little trails getting into them, but it's like little bitty goat path where it's not real noticeable. We know where it's at, but it's not this blatant landing strip for deer to just start walking down. I, I think there's there's that element, and the other element is ask yourself, is this the right access, number yeah. one. Number two, are you are you going too deep into the property number two that was number two and then number three is do you have enough distinction within your habitat to make deer movements really defined because if mm-hmm. not and they're walking around haphazard because there's resource yeah. just strung out everywhere or well, it's nowhere and they're yeah. just trying to make a living they're meandering i don't yeah. want meandering i want definition yeah and so i would be looking and ask myself those kind of questions um to be to 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 know if okay, is this the right practice to even do, yeah. or 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 is this the right place to hunt? Yeah, yeah. Because when you have the definition and deer pattern, by definition you mean bedding thickets and food plots and yes. bottlenecks. And they take the majority of deer take this trail. Yeah. To get from A to B, but but it's it's uh, I don't I don't I don't like the meandering kind of aspects yeah. of it. Um, but I I just ask myself, is this even just Period, the right place to hunt. Yep. And, and it sounds like it's not. If honestly. they're using it on a regular basis, then you've not. You might as well hunt somewhere else or hunt back 100 yards and catch them on that trail. And that's the thing. Deer, are, deer do have four legs. They move. And so just because it's a good spot doesn't mean there aren't other good spots or equally good spots to hunt because those deer aren't staying right there. Yeah. They're moving across this property. Yeah. Is there a good summer crop to plant when cows have the ability to forage in it for three months of the summer? Oh, that now we're getting into a whole different thing when we mention cows and grazing because um, if you're talking about a summer crop to plant when cows have the ability to forage it, is this a question that unfortunately is this I can't cattle ask? Cattle oriented or is this wildlife yeah. incorporated? So we're looking. I'm just going to assume since this is a wildlife page that he's asking for a good summer crop to plant when cows can graze it for three months. And that would basically be like, okay, are we looking for the standpoint of like, are the cows just being dumped in this paddock for three months? Right, and they're not getting moved off of it? Because that's going to be tricky. Yes. Um, Because there's all the stuff that we like in our forages are made to have rest involved. So even if you incorporate alfalfa and clovers... Um, chicories and plantains, orchard grass from a summer standpoint, in, into a mix of grass. Then <coughs> obviously the clovers, the chicory, and the alfalfa is great summer forage. Yeah. But if you're just dumping them out there, they're going to eat the eat the legumes and leave the grasses first, and then all of a sudden you've got to pass your dominating grass and and no recovery for the legumes. No loco- and even the grasses are suffering too. So if they're getting rotated, and you're like, hey, we've got you know. We're moving these cows every few days or every week, then yeah, incorporate. If it's mm-hmm. a, we're looking for a perennial cool season pasture, incorporate the alfalfas, chicories, clovers, uh, plantains, um, trufles, whatever you want to include that deer like and deer forage on. Include that in your cool season pasture if it's going to be, you know, appropriately grazed. If you're asking from a summer standpoint, a summer crop that's an annual, so you're like, I'm going to plant a bunch of annuals. 
the you know the heritage slash ancestry blends oh, even blended together are great. Yep. You can't take they can't take the grazing like perennial grasses. You're can, not going to so leave them on there for three months. You better strip graze and start rotating if that's yep. the plan. And so, so there, there's there's more I think uh, questions we would ask to answer that effectively or maybe more effectively per the situation. But those are definitely good ideas to consider um, for for that gentleman. Oh, next question is a great one. Okay. How to control clover and native stands. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've said this to several clients. I've not said it on the podcast, but if deer and cows didn't eat clover, it it might be our number one invasive species. It is. It can be very difficult to kill out. And and there's just so many... cattle farms that have gone recreational and this is a this is a good and a bad right yeah. depends on how you look at it um but but sometimes once they spray out a an area that had fescue it is coming back and the seed bank is full of uh clover seed and it is coming back and great clover stands and but, it's but, making more seed oh, so yeah. quick oh. but but it's it's not for every place and it and it then, if it's not meant to be there, or it's not supposed to be there in the management and the layout, now it is a prohibitive plant because it greens up early in the season. It almost becomes the secondary cool season grass because it's very mat forming. Yeah. And it spreads across the ground, but it greens up so early, so it gets a leg up on many of the other natives. So you you then would treat it just like a fescue yeah. um, type situation. And it may be a, it. it'll probably be a little tougher because it yeah. is so dense. So couple treatments of herbicide gly, glyphosate during the summer or during the spring or fall when those natives have gone dormant yep. is probably your best bet. Um, and, and that's what we've been recommended to guys. So, um, And it, it you're not the only one in that uh, situation. There's a lot yeah. of people who are trying to plant diverse natives, whether it's pollinator situations or just um, grass and, and forb mixtures, and they're fighting clovers. Yeah. This next one is a good question as well. They're all good questions, but a couple of them I'm like, ooh, I like this one. Best ways to get deer to frequent on small parcel properties. Boy, that, I that's don't a loaded how, question, How wonderful you know, question. I look at it like this. I've always value cover more than food. Yeah. Um, but if you're in a property surrounded by good quality cover and there's no food in the neighborhood, food might be the answer. But... I would say more times than not, quality cover is limited in the neighborhood versus quality food. And if you make quality cover, and what and what we mean by quality cover, take it that an extra step is that that is also food, yeah. right? So you yeah, can kind of yeah, yeah. kill the two birds with one stone by focusing first foremost on native cover that is high quality food and dense and secure. You you offer that, it's it's. A step up above this, many of the other neighboring This conversation properties. makes me want to hit my head against the wall so many times because so much emphasis is put on food plots and yeah. food and food and food and food and food. Like, it's the it's the end-all, be-all, save-all. Totally. And it's like, oh, once I got the food, that guy's doing it right. He's got food plots and minerals. Well, shut up. Um, because <laughs> There's more. Uh, There's for, more. T- for a couple of reasons. I, and I've done this analogy before, but I'll do it again in case you missed it. But... If you look at a deer and you look at, you know, let's say there's 20, there's 24 hours in a day and we have legal shooting hours 30 minutes before sunup and 30 minutes before sundown um, or 30 minutes after and before I might have swapped that. So legal shooting hours 30 minutes before sunrise and 30 minutes after sunset. 
And so that's our legal time. Most deer during that time frame are bedded down. Okay, right? Yeah. If if Agreed. they're moving, Agreed. it's in close proximity. And don't argue with me about the summer. We're talking about fall hunting season. Yeah. If they're moving, you know, and it's not the rut, they're probably moving close to bedding. And even during the rut, they're probably moving close to bedding. So bedding to me is the foundation. That's the that's so the it's, that's it's, where it's that's our, built off of. our bedrock. Yep. Um, and then the other thing is to look at food. How often are we chasing food? It's ever changing. Acorns start dropping. Yep. Fruit trees start dropping. Clovers now more more uh, attractive. Now we have a frost and brassicas are more. It's ever changing. Yep. That hay field, it's an that, ebb and flow. That, that alf that alfalfa field just got cut for hay. Now what do we do? The corn got harvested. The corn got harvested. The, the beans crops turned. Are, yeah, yeah. It's just like ever changing. We're shooting a moving target. But if we have bedding in east, north, south, west facing slopes, and we have them defined, guess what's not changing? The fact that deer are not are using those bedding areas. Yep. I don't understand. Some, and I, I that's why I say it makes me want to beat my head against the wall because sometimes I feel like it's all falling on deaf ears when we talk so much about the importance of betting. Because what do you do? You get on social media, which is the last thing we should do in this in this day and age, and say, look at this. Let's all talk about food plots. Why aren't we talking about betting? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it goes back into uh, if you missed the podcast last week with Dr. Will Goolsby, we talked so much about the, the amount and the probability of a mature buck being in dense cover that is secure opposed to exposing themselves in food plot areas. So if you want to own those deer or just deer in general, offer dense cover that is secure. Yeah. Period. That is that is the bedrock. That is the foundation. Everything, yeah. if you will, that is the origin, the, the, the spoke or excuse me, the, the wheel, the center of the wheel, the hub, and everything else feeds off of that in the property. If you don't have a hub, you don't have a functional tire. Yeah, period. Yeah, so important, get cover and don't disturb it with your presence. So get secure cover and then build off of that. I, I, I will, okay, so... You're going to have to put e- up or shut up here this fall, I guess, right? Absolutely. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. I, that's exactly what I'm dealing with. 35 acres. The first thing was was not to add food and just say, okay, here we go. It was, let's cut some timber. Let's get some stuff on the ground. Let's, let's get some regeneration. Let's offer high-quality bedding. And it's not to the degree or size that I want long-term, but there's already an acre and a half that's cut plus – some walnuts have been cut and a little more sunlight and structure with canopies spread throughout the property. So cover was first and foremost, and I feel strongly that that's going to be the biggest return of time for season one on the place. Yep. Yep. I own 50 acres of steep hill country, about seven acres in a prairie type with mostly just grasses and goldenrod that this transitions from timber and then butts up to a cornfield. What's the best way to incorporate some diversity here and get deer movement through here? Um, and I'm going to answer the prairie type, mostly grasses and goldenrod. First and foremost, seven acres is a good chunk, but just grasses and goldenrod doesn't do it. So either incorporate a growing season fire to encourage forbs or do some light dormant season disking to encourage forbs. Monitor for Cerisa lespedeza, monitor for other invasives, but basically, if if you have seven acres, mostly grass, 
it's time to disturb that. Yep. You could even graze it, graze it during the summer and uh, try to knock that late summer, trying to knock some of that grass back. But basically, I would want to see more forbs. So you could more do it forb with, diversity. You could do it with herbicide, but I'd rather go either disking or growing season fire just to try to encourage um, more diversity there. The, the uh, steepness of the terrain um, isn't isn't a make or break for wildlife being on it at all. Yeah. It, it to me, it's a learn how the wildlife are utilizing the topography and build the features off of that initial usage, kind of where they're limited to walking and you will be more successful. If that's timber, if there's value, cut some. Yeah. If there's not, cut some. <laughs> yeah. If there's no value, cut some. If there is value, cut, cut some. some. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. pretty pretty, pretty uh, yeah. easy yeah. cut. The only time you wouldn't cut is if there is going to be value in yeah. the future. And you and, and you then cut some around it so it grows faster. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't know, like Chainsaw, this b- podcast brought to you by Chainsaws. Like this podcast brought to you by Drip Torches. Yeah. Um, Just do it. Work harder than your neighbors. I don't know anybody who has has implemented managing the canopy, right, to to whatever degree, whether there's a timber harvest or there is a uh, a thinning, um, TSI, FSI, whatever the case is, who has said, I cut too much. I've never gotten that. From a wildlife standpoint that we've yeah. worked with, yeah. Now there's people Mo- from a timber standpoint who said I cut too much, and then over time we're like, yeah, maybe it wasn't so bad, right? Well, or they wild, say, well, that was it. way too much, but the deer sure loved it, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, you you probably made more money on the front end of this than yeah. than your next harvest, but yeah. but guess what? You cut. Good job. Yeah. The worst thing you should do is not cutting at all. Yes. First off, your podcasts are great and packed with information. Would you consider doing something on a terrain, on the terrain, and plants on hills? Almost break the hill down into three parts, the top, the side, the bottom, and what's the best option and plants for each level. Mm. I'm in Ohio, and my property is all hills, and there's so much more to the land than just a hill. So I look at it like this, that, you know, that's a... It depends, but Very let's much. let's try giving some analogies to hopefully answer some of that. So hilltop, we're talking upland side, side slope, we're talking upland, but plant communities and trees could be dependent upon: are we east facing, west facing, Aspect south facing, that slope, north facing? Yep. Um, so I'm gonna just draw a scenario and say it's a west facing slope. We got ridge top that's upland, west facing slope, then going down into the bottom ground, which is riparian area. So plant communities that I would like to see in each. If I'm talking the upland site, um, I would love to see if it's a somewhat open, if we're looking for disturbance uh, or just natives. I would like to see, oh, goodness, pokeweed, goldenrod, um, some sort of native sunflowers, native grasses. If I'm going down the slope, very similar. I'd like to see some shrubs, some uh, young forest regeneration. Obviously, there's trees there, so I'm probably cutting some of those trees back. Um, probably black-eyed Susan, or um, trying to think of some other uh, beggar's lice, or the Desmodium family. Um, yeah. Well, I think I think so I think many, to uh, almost uh, break it down a little bit easier, more simple from an access standpoint. Easier to hunt, 
more or less on the ridge tops for yourself. Absolutely. Yep. So I'm going to try and stash deer or put them during daylight hours on the slopes because yep. I'm not going to travel that as much. And it's yep. harder for you to get around. The wind's going to swirl away worse. Not really a hunting location. No. So that's where I'm going to get aggressive, like you said, on that young forest and try and encourage deer to bed on the slope. And a west yep. slope specifically, they're going to do that more often in the during winter. the winter, which is when you're hunting. Yep. And, and you might go lighter and try and do more mass-producing um, benefit on the ridge tops to pull them up on the ridge top mm-hmm. if you need to clear um, and supplement food because there's portions of Ohio that there's not a lot of oak um, left in the forest. It's yeah. very much tulip poplar, hard maples, and um, a mixture of, of other species. There's some, some places that don't have a lot of oak, so you may need to supplement on food. But, yep. but, sh- but from a breaking down of ridge, that's how functionally – I think it's going to work best for yep. a hunting scenario. And then the bottom is... The bottom could be, you know, depending on the site, if it's, let's go east slope, I could manage it for more early season bedding during yep. the, the heat of the summer or the dog days, the, the Indian summers, if you will, the hot spells during the fall. Um, that never happens, right? No. <laughs> it seems like every year now is September is the driest month, but... Um, that would be what you could do for an east slope riparian area is try to manage it, cut some trees, get that young forest, get that vegetation there, and have bedding uh, and as well as food. So some plant communities I'd like mm-hmm. to see down there would be jewelweed, um, giant, giant ragweed are two of our absolute favorites. So wing stem, uh, yeah, wing stem, forged, wild golden glow. Yep, yep. So all those could be could be great. Um, but other than that, that's really, you just try to diversify. But if we're going to place deer bedding somewhere, we want it to be on the slope. Yep. Uh, my phone locked. I've got sunglasses on. So one second while I open this up and say, um, we've got three left. If an area has a mixture of flush cuts and hinge cuts, how do you control the stump sprouts to avoid having a closed canopy a few years after cutting? Cut the sprouts and other saplings. Can the sprouts and other saplings be controlled with fire before they... Uh, get out of reach of the deer, or worse, begin to close the canopy again. I think we answered that question uh, yeah. uh, in the earlier portion of the podcast. You can manage with fire. And, and herbicide. And like, herbicide. And when yep. you cut them, treat them. Yeah. yeah. Herbicide. So, like, it depends on your site, your part of the world. If you're in the northern climate, we don't recommend herbicide for a lot of those because, unless it's invasive, because we know deer are going to pound the stump sprouts. Generally, on most sites, it is very lacking to have yeah. woody browse available. A and lot so of times, we're like... The problem is we can't get it to grow. Yeah. If we go down south, we're using a lot more herbicide because we want that herbaceous unit that's not going to grow out of reach. Right. So depending on where you're at, James, um, that's that's what we recommend. Uh, one picture is him on the beach, so I don't think that's his home. <laughs> uh, with aggressive TSI, is it okay to follow up with burns every three to four years, or do you have uh, use herbicide to treat stumps on aggressive no, uh, on aggressive re-sprouting species like poplar, beech, and maple. All three don't like fire. Yep. So if it's heavy and there's a fuel load, you can burn it every three to four years. Totally. It's likely what we would encourage that depending on the exact site and the goal of it. But we, we would, ab- after you open the canopy, encourage the fire to manage the understory. Yeah, it's a whole lot easier than running a chainsaw or carrying around herbicide. It's less work. You come back after a couple of years, manage some invasives in right. between, and... Do it all over again. I mean, as we said before, we don't love herbicide, but we love the tool that it provides and the fact of controlling invasives. And, and, 
yeah. it cracks me up. I will say this. It cracks me up how when it gets into timber management, people don't have a concern with herbicide. Yeah. When it's more acres of the property, we're in food plots, and guys are like, no, I'm trying to eliminate herbicide. But, but, but I ain't got a problem recommending a 100-acre TSI where you're going to be using herbicide. Well, That's even more ground-active than, than glyphosate. N- not even that. It's, it's I'm going to... Man, not, I'm going to reduce my herbicide usage on the food plot, but but this is surrounded by pine plantation, and the forester recommends to do broad spectrum 2,4-D oh, yeah. in pine plantations and reduce any type of woody herbaceous broadleaf cover. Yeah. And it's like, you yeah, that was hundreds of acres, and you got two-acre food plot, and you're worried about it? Yeah. that's yeah. The, the, the stump sprout in, in the forest system is just, it's a pinpoint accurate. Yeah. It, you're killing one species. That's not yeah. an issue of, of herbicide usage. It, it's it's the other spectrum. Well, I look at it from the standpoint of like if I let's just say hack and squirt, and you're going through and you're treating a large majority yeah. of trees with arsenal and mm-hmm. triclopyr and all this stuff. It's like how how I don't I don't see how these are too. You you don't want to use it in the food plot, but you have no problem across acres and acres and acres and acres. Yeah, makes no sense to me, but. What do I know? Um, next up, nearing the end, this is the last one. So we answered that. Yeah, you can use fire as long as there's mm-hmm. uh, as long as there's a uh, fuel load. Nearing the end. Oh, that that one was that the last uh, one. That one got put on there again. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Well, there we go. I think, Wonderful. Yeah, I think so. Um, so anyway, guys, man, that was fun. Um, a lot I, of great questions. Yeah, there 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 were, and obviously. Many of them are situationally based, and and it's difficult to to pull or have all that information supplied to get it pinpoint accurate for for everyone who maybe submitted a question. So, um, not that I don't think the information was was it going to steer anybody in the wrong direction, but when you do ask questions in the future, um, try and provide as much detail as like what you want the site to be, where you're located within that question, and we'll be able to give you a more definitive answer. Um, to help you along the way, but those were those are some great questions, and hope got everyone thinking. Um, even if you didn't ask them, think about how that could apply to you in your situation on your own property. No doubt. All right, guys, we appreciate you listening, and uh, don't be sure to jump over and listen to podcast number two this week. And uh, we'll, we'll catch see, you over there. We'll see you over there. Yeah.